We'll continue to worship through the reading and teaching of God's Word. If you have a Bible with you, or an electronic copy of the Scriptures on your phone, perhaps, I'll tell you what I tell my students, turn your phone on airplane mode, so you're not distracted with other things. We're going to read from John chapter 20. John 20, verses 19 through 29. As you're turning there, I'll pray for the reading of God's Word. Lord, we come to you dependent on you, Spirit, to open our minds and our hearts to not only understand intellectually, but with spiritual, true understanding. Would you move us into action, into the world, through what you teach our minds and hearts this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All of you have heard of St. Patrick, and he is more than just the patron saint of St. Patty's Day. He was a saint before that, um, and a saint because he did some amazing missionary work in Ireland. But what you might not know about him, most of you, I bet, didn't know this because I didn't know this, which is probably not a good judgment of what you know or don't know, but he was English, and when he was a teenager, he was captured by pirates, Irish pirates, and taken to Ireland to be a slave. For five years, he was a slave in Ireland. That was his first introduction to Ireland. And he escaped back to England, and then he chose to take all those wounds that he experienced there, developmentally, you can imagine, psychological wounds, physical wounds. And some of us might say, you know, maybe he should have had healthier boundaries and not gone back to those people. But he took all those wounds back to Ireland so that people would know Jesus. His story compels me. What would make a man do something like that, to take all those wounds that he experienced, what would give him the courage to take them back to the very people that gave him those wounds? Because we have wounds. They come in the form of our own sin against others that we live with, the shame from the, the sin of others against us. And those things threaten to fester. Those wounds, they, they threaten to come out on the people around us. They come out in every way. But what would make us have the courage to take those wounds and have them not fester, but have rest in the midst of those wounds? Have rest in Christ alone. My three-year-old lately, he, when he is wounded, whether it be something that somebody did to him, but even... Things like hitting his toe on a chair, and it hurts like the Dickens, and he immediately looks around for who he can hit because he's so mad that he got hurt, right? I think we're not that different. We just are socialized to not do that to people. We just swear in our heads instead of out loud, right? Or out loud, too. And so we say things... When people criticize us, who are they to say that about me? And we get angry. Why did she look at me that way? And we get angry. Our wounds, they come out, not, we don't even recognize they're there until they pop out as defensiveness and anger, insecurity, fear. 
And they all stem from wounds, whether we know it, what those wounds are or not. But thankfully, the Creator God is not aloof or indifferent to your wounds, to the wounds of your neighbors, to the wounds of the world. In fact, He hates them. He's endeavored to overcome them. And what we're going to look at today is that God not only heals our wounds, we'll see how Jesus does that in our scripture, He lays out His plan. To redeem them. So let's read our passage, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, with that in mind. Jesus redeem, heals our wounds, then he goes on to redeem them. The two points. This is after the resurrected Jesus appeared to the disciples. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hand in the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. We're going to look at two things from this text. One is how Jesus heals our wounds. And we'll look at it through the lens of Thomas. And then secondly, how God moves beyond healing our wounds and actually redeems them, and there's a difference. Even the best counseling on the earth, and it's a mercy for sure, will, will try to take wounds that you have when you present them, and they will try to help you heal from them as if they've never happened before, so they won't affect you anymore. Well, Jesus, we know this from God throughout all the scriptures. He's not in the business of making, acting as if things never happened. He takes evil things, he takes wounds that have all come from sin, and he, he not only heals them, he makes them beautiful. He takes evil things and turns them into good things. And so let's talk about how he heals them first, and then we'll talk about how he actually redeems them, which is even better. Well, we see this play out when the resurrected Jesus meets Thomas in all of Thomas's wounds. To understand Thomas's wounds, which we can recognize by his lashing out, and his his saying, you'd never say this to Jesus' face, right? Like, unless I can put my finger in his fresh wound... Nobody's going to say that to Jesus. He respected him. He loves him. He's his Lord. But he said it about him because he was angry and bitter. Well, we have to walk in his shoes for a moment to understand why, where his wounds lied, right? Well, many people are referred to as disciples in the New Testament. Then there are these, these disciples, the twelve. And when Jesus said to each of them, he pointed at them and said, You... He didn't just say any 12 people, the first 12 people to show up. He said, you are coming to follow me. 
and they thought of doing nothing else. When Jesus had eyes for them, they had eyes for no one else. They dropped whatever they were doing and they followed Jesus. He was worth everything. And so they walked around with Jesus and they saw these amazing things that Jesus would do. They saw these healings that Jesus would do. They saw him interact with with people and just know things about them and know what they needed to hear in order to believe. His presence was like no one else's. He could challenge right when it was the right moment to challenge with the right words. He could encourage right when it was ready, the time to be encouraged. But above all else, he was always thinking about other people. This is probably the most undoing thing of Jesus because he's the only one who wasn't walking around thinking about himself because he's the only one who was without sin. And so he had no selfishness. And so he always had eyes for the other. And it was undoing for people. And it was undoing in two different different ways. Either it was undoing to you because you saw that Jesus knew everything about you. And you felt deep shame. And you hated that he knew everything about you. And you responded and lashed back out out of him like the Pharisees might. Or he saw everything about you. And you were undone. But you also saw the love of Jesus in his eyes. And you saw forgiveness along with knowing. The disciples were of their deepest fears were dispelled rather than their deepest fears. Um, realized. The Pharisees were the kind of the important folks who, when Jesus saw them, they made them more afraid. The disciples were like, okay, he knows me and still loves me. I'm following this guy. They were all in. Thomas was all in. He had no other sustenance. Literally, they would just take whatever Jesus would provide for them. They would be passing through wheat fields, and Jesus would tell them to grab wheat on the way to their next mission. Well, they had nothing else, and all of the hope in the world, even the hope of their race and their people, the Israelites, was in Jesus. Thomas gave up everything because Jesus gave up everything for him, and then Jesus had the gall to die. We know this was upsetting because when Peter, the only time he ever rebuked Jesus, is when Jesus said that he was going to die. And Peter, knowing that he was God himself, he knew that God could not die, and he knew for sure Jesus was wrong and needed to rebuke him. But their worst fears come true. Jesus did, in fact, die. And so their fears are running high. Everything they, they were behind a locked door. Do you see in verse 19, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And then again, eight days later, the disciples, um, in verse 26, his disciples were inside again, and the doors were locked. They were terrified. Their savior, their friend, their protector, he was gone. And so they feared the Jews with whom they used to walk. And so Thomas isn't going to be made a fool twice. He went all in on Jesus once. And so Jesus says later, do not disbelieve, but believe. And so here's Thomas, like us. We come to worship every day, and our prayer and our songs are always, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. God is forming us into people who believe the things more that we sing, that we pray. And so here he is not believing or afraid to believe again in Jesus. And Jesus knows what they need. The first thing he says to them is peace be with you. 
And before he says anything else again, he says, peace be with you. And then he comes to them eight days later, and the first thing he says is, peace be with you. Because they needed peace, because they were afraid. And so now that you've walked in Thomas' shoes for a moment, you realize why he would say something as bitter as, unless I see his hands in the mark of his nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Though he doesn't say it to Jesus' face, Jesus knows. And so when Jesus comes, he says, peace be with you all. And then he turns to Thomas in verse 28, in verse 27. Thomas, he says by name, put your finger here. See my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Jesus knows exactly what Thomas needs in his doubt. He's not insecure that he was just hung on a cross entirely naked, splayed out for the world to see, and then mocked and humiliated and, and literally stabbed and bled dry in front of everyone, in front of the watching world. Any normal human would be full of shame and want to cover themselves up, but yet he wears his wounds and shows his wounds freely because he's not thinking about himself. He's not ashamed He's thinking about Thomas, and he's thinking about you. He meets Thomas in his own festering wounds with his wounds. These are the wounds that heal because Jesus' wounds paid the price for our sin. They spilled the blood that we deserved to have to spill. And when anyone believes in Jesus, that blood covers them. And so he wears them. The perfectly resurrected Jesus doesn't have perfectly smooth hands. He has holes in them. He does not have a healed side. He has a hole in his side. He wears them as Ebenezer's, as reminders of God's salvation, what he's done for us. And he wears them to this day. But he doesn't just heal them. He, Thomas has changed he doesn't just heal Thomas, he actually redeems Thomas and, and uses his wounds for good. Do you see what happens in verse, this is our second point of two. In verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This passage isn't just for Thomas. This isn't about Thomas only, it's about us. It's about his church ever since. We, we, Thomas gets a bad rap for this. We call him doubting, people that are doubters, we call them doubting Thomases. We are doubting Thomas. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief is our prayer every time we come before the God. And Jesus actually gave us, God gave us this passage, preserved it for us, and had it written down for us, and gave it to us so that we would believe even though we don't see. We don't see, none of one, not one of you has put your finger in the holes in his hands or seen the hole in his side, yet you believe. Jesus has put Thomas's doubt to work. His wounds have now become an Ebenezer, a, uh, which is in the Old Testament, and God would do something great. They would build something to remind themselves that God did something wonderful, that God saves. And here is Thomas, a living, a living Ebenezer, in the living scriptures, saying God saves. God meets us in our wounds. And so he has become a source of redemption for the world, for you. We read this and are encouraged in our own doubt. 
And so our wounds have a story to tell. My daughter, when she was 22 months old, she's now going in, well, is in third grade, almost nine years old, and around this time, seven years ago, she got a bad burn on her arm. And it was from hot water that sloshed. We were, had a, an RUF event with students over our house, and we had a hot water carafe uh, for hot chocolate, and it, she shook it, and it came out under her arm, under her pajamas, and so it sat on her and burned it pretty badly. We went to the, it looked really bad, but we went to the doctor, and they said, it's going to be fine. It's a second-degree burn. It's not going to bother her much. We'll dress it and keep it clean, and we'll just watch for infection. And no infection ever showed up and, to the visible eye, but she just got sicker and sicker and sicker over the next week. And so we finally, we took her in three times. And they were rolling their eyes by the third time we went in because they're like, she looks, this, she's doing the same, she's fine. But then they said, all right, we'll draw blood. And we'll see, we'll test her blood, see if something's up. And so they kind of do it half-heartedly, but then they can't draw any blood because she's so dehydrated that her veins are flat. And they can't get a needle in. So they're a little worried at that point. They're starting to pay attention. We're a little worried. They still think it's not much, just dehydration. They're like, well, we'll, get it, we'll get, once we get in, we'll get an IV in, and we'll give her fluids. She'll be fine. Well, all of a sudden, we found ourselves, once they did, they got the best person they could to take blood. They got a little bit of blood. They tested it, and they didn't tell us the results. They just rushed her to the room right inside the ER where it's all glass walls, and all the doctors, all the nurses all rushed in and worked on her. And we had no idea what was happening other than all the alarms were going off, and they were putting a central line in her leg, and they were doing It was a nightmare. And for the next two days, we sat with her in the ICU, and she just got worse and worse and worse. And it turns out she had an infection of the blood. It was called sepsis. And her little body was shutting down. Her hands and feet were black because her body was trying to save, putting all the blood into the organs to save her and cutting off her, literally cutting off her feet and her hands. And we found the, nurse, or the doctor came in. She was similar age to us. She had a two-year-old at home, a girl just like us. And she came in, and she didn't know my wife was in there at 2 o'clock in the morning, and she put her head down on the crib and just started weeping. And the nurse came in and said, the mother's in here. And she looked up and just said, I'm doing everything I can, and it's not enough. And we knew. We prepared for her to die at that point. Well, you know she's in third grade. You know she lives. I'd love to tell all of the redemption of that story. But God saved her little life, even saved her fingers and toes. They were black, needed to be cut off. And life came back into them, and she has all of her fingers, all of her toes, miraculously. And now she has a big scar on her arm. Because when her blood got cut off to her arm, it didn't heal. And so she has a third-degree burn because it never healed. And so she has this mottled, you know, skin on her arm from a bad burn, and like kids do, when they saw her in church about a year later, they were going by and saw her arm, and they said, ew, what's that? And we watched her pull her sleeve down and cover her arm up in shame, and we thought, okay, we need to tell her what this means. That wound tells a story. The story of God saving her and caring for every one of her toes and every one of her fingers. It's an Ebenezer. God didn't just heal her. That wound became a story of redemption. That's what God's doing in Thomas. 
It's what he's doing in you. He says in verse 29, Have you believed? Because you have seen. Many will believe who have not seen because of this. He did this with the other disciples too. He meets their fear with peace. He offers them forgiveness. The Bible goes on to tell the story of Jesus walking this earth for the next 40 days. And before he ascends to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit to be among us instead. We call it Pentecost. All of it with the mission not just to heal people, but to extend the good news of Jesus and his healing presence to every corner of the earth. He puts our wounds to work. That's what it means to redeem them. And now you all are healed people, walking Ebenezers, that walk into the world and show the story of God's redemption because he's redeemed you. He's healed you of your worst malady, your selfishness. It's the simplest definition of sin, our self-consumption. My wife um, is very much on mission like I am on campus. She's on mission in our neighborhood and in the school. And she regularly invites people over, and a lot of times people don't come. A lot of people sometimes do come. And so we had a, a one evening where a lot of the neighbors showed up, and a lot of them weren't Christians. And she was recounting this to her friend, and she's like, people are busy. Why do they come? Like, why do they spend time with us? Like, and her friend stopped her, and she goes, you have no idea what your presence is like. Because she's a healed person. Somebody who's been through many wounds and she's from a broken family. But she is a beautiful Ebenezer because God has not only healed her, but made her a beautiful woman of God. And people want to be around her. Because her wounds aren't festering and coming out on everybody. And if they do, she repents. But mostly they're coming, that she's this beautiful person that's thinking about others. She has the mind of Christ. that Christ gives us himself by his spirit. We are healed people that are a picture of God's redemption in our neighborhoods, in our co-ops, in our schools, in our families. The church has something distinct that the world's looking for and wants but doesn't know it needs. It doesn't know where to find it, but you know. You've experienced it. Jerry Sitzer wrote a book called A Grace Disguised, and... Uh, he is a theologian. He teaches at a, a school, a seminary, and a college. And he was driving out west on those big roads where people fly because it's flat and goes on forever and there's no other cars. Well, they met another car. And that car had a drunk driver in it. And, of course, it hit his car. He had four people in the car with him, which represented the entire um, generations of women in his family, his mother, his wife, and his daughters, three generations of the women in his life, gone in an instant, and he lived. And he wrestles with what that means, and he said, if I could undo it, I would, but I also would never undo the mercy that I've experienced from God. And he realized his wounds, one of the most powerful lines in it, his wounds weren't just for him, they were for others. So many have found mercy through him sharing his story of God's redemption and him meeting Jerry in his grief, meeting Jerry in his wounds. Jesus doesn't cover up our wounds. 
like they never happened. The scars that we have tell a story. They tell a story of redemption where there was once pain and once destruction, now there's life. And so we can freely tell people about our sin, about how we've been forgiven. And they're going to want it too. There's an art form called kintsugi. It's a Japanese art form, and I'll give you a little background to it as I close here. It's, uh, the reason I found out about it was a gentleman that some of you might know. He's an elder in the PCA. He lives in Hershey, and uh, he is an expert in medical tech because he was a doctor and then went to MIT and got a degree in technology, and so now... He, every company in the world wants to hire him away from the other company to, to design medical tech for them. And so Google hired him at one point. Now I think Microsoft is hiring him. But Google hired him, and they flew him out to Japan to meet some customers. And when he got there, um, he's supposed to meet, this is like his first, second week on the job total. And he's supposed to meet these other vice presidents and folks from Google. Well, they never showed up. Instead, a car showed up to, to the door uh, at the hotel and said, get whatever you, the best thing you have to wear is, get it on and get in the car. You're going to be gone for the evening. He was the highest ranking official in the country to go to this dinner. And he had to represent Google and had no idea what he was doing because he's a tech guy and a doctor. But now he has to be the host of this party. And when the, the car arrives, it pulls into the Imperial Palace which is the height of all honor and decadence in all of Japan. And they go to the guest house of the Imperial Palace, and they're sitting, he's sitting at the high table, and um, there's an older Japanese gentleman next to him, and through a translator, he, he notices the guy is crying, and he asks, as a merciful man would, he said, can you tell me about your tears? I see that you're... And he said, through the translator, I never thought I would get to see this place. Because there's so much, in a, in a shame on our culture, there's so much that was meant that he got to be there at that table. And he never thought he'd be there. But at the height of the decadence of all of Japanese culture and honor was the tea master. He was the most important person there serving tea. And he served tea on these broken, cracked teacups. And so our friend from Hershey asks, what's with the cracks? You know, he probably said it nicer than that, but like, why are these broken? But he also said, but they're beautiful. And they said, exactly. The, the art of kintsugi is to take these broken cups. You never throw them away when they break. This fine china it breaks regularly because it's so fine. They overlay those cracks with gold, with gold glue. And so these, every crack becomes this golden uh, monument to uh, another time when honor was shared. And so at the height of all of the honor in their culture was this beautiful teacup, that, but the beauty of it was in its cracks that were healed. And so you can see where I'm going with that. Jesus overlays our wounds with grace, which is greater than gold. And so here we are walking around, and, and what we have to show the world are our cracks that have been overlaid with gold. Our wounds that we've caused others, the wounds that have been caused to us with sin. These are wounds through which Jesus is now healing the world. Let me pray for us to that end. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for taking people that were festering, 
and hurting and suffering from our own sin, the sin of the world, and making us into a beautiful people, a people for your own possession that even you think are beautiful, but it's only because you made us that way. Would you continue to make us into more beautiful people? Would we not take credit for it, but would you help us point others to you as they see it in our lives? Let us turn from our sin that we might have more gold than we do and more grace than we do ourselves. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.